And greetings from Kingston, Jamaica. I'm Julian Rogers, and uh, well, it's a Saturday afternoon, and I promise you that if you spend an hour with us, you won't regret it. I know many of you have been curious about the title of this week's uh, edition, Teeth from Teeth, Make God Laugh. Well, I have to tell you, if you don't understand that, then you are in very bad company. Trust me. So uh, we said that we have a look at corruption in high and low places. And uh, a lot of you are very familiar with Transparency International and the institutions that they have operated in at least 100 countries around the world. And uh, there is, that is the, the kind of framework that we're going to work with today because Transparency International just issued their corruption index and indicated exactly where a number of Caribbean states stand. Some not so good, some not so bad, etc. But the bottom line is that we have a lot of work to do. And therefore, I thought I'd reach out to a couple of friends of mine and say, can we get together on Saturday and talk about this? One of them is Afro Raymond. He is a transparency activist. He's from Trinidad and Tobago. I know him from interviewing him several times there. And uh, he's got a web blog as well, a thinking man's web blog, which I think you should really check out. Then I've got Jeanette Calder. She's in Jamaica where I am the executive director of the Jamaica Accountability Meter Portal. It's a mouthful, but I tell you, when her, she opens her mouth, you'll get more than a mouthful as far as transparency is concerned. So that's Jeanette Calder, and I'll tell you a little bit more about her later on. And then they introduced me to Dr. Troy Thomas, who is the dean of the Faculty of Natural Sciences in the University of Guyana. Uh, he's a statistician by training and occupation, but he's also been the past president of the Transparency Institute of Guyana. And I had a very interesting conversation with him leading up to today's show. And I hope that we'll be able to share some of the, some of the thoughts he shared with me a little later on. So welcome everybody, wherever you are, across the Caribbean and beyond the Caribbean. And we want to welcome, of course, people who are joining us on Barbados today for the very first time. Happy to have you on board. And please, everybody, keep liking Caribbean Bridges and let's get together every Saturday. So here we are, transparency, big watchword, but hey, T from T from make God laugh. Let me start with Afra and uh, welcome him. Uh, he's got a great blog. Please, I tell you, check it out. The Thinking Man's blog, web blog. Afra, how are you doing? What's happening in Trinidad? It's carnival? Well, what's happening in Trinidad and Tobago is not carnival, but you have a lot of old mass because <laughs> what happened in the month of December, 2020, uh, was that the Public Procurement and Disposal of Public Property Act that we had worked on, and by we, I mean a civil society coalition. I played a role in that between 2010 and 2015. We wrote the law, which was in fact a serious improvement of controlling all transactions in public money. We presented the law to the then government, which was the People's Partnership, Mrs. Kamla Pasad Decesa, and that law, we had to fight to get it passed, but it was passed as the first act of 2015, act number one of 2015. In September of 2015, the PNM won the election, which is the party in power at the moment. And uh, there has been a series of delays, what you might want to call serial delays, in terms of getting that law implemented. The procurement board was not appointed until 2018, January. And there have been delays after delays after delays. And unfortunately, it seemed to me, that's my opinion, it seemed to me that the civil society coalition that has fought to write the law, have it passed into law in our country. And to, to get it implemented, that coalition stopped its work virtually from the beginning of 2016. There was very little agitation. So the thing that we had crafted together all the way from labor, we had the Federation of Trade Unions, all the way from the left, all the way to the right, the Chamber of Commerce was in the coalition with us. I was at the time president of the Joint Consultative Council for the construction industry, and we had a leading role in that coalition. That coalition stopped doing its work, which allowed the party in power to drag its feet. They brought the Lord Parliament, they made two amendments, which I don't consider to be of serious consequence, they brought the law to that a third amendment of their sleeve, and they brought that to Parliament on the 4th of December, 2020. And cutting a long, sad story short, what has now been expressly omitted from the Act, a government-to-government -government arrangements, 
public-private partnerships, anything to do with legal fees, anything to do with accounting and auditing. That's an astonishing omission, given that the act is supposed to control transactions in public money. How in heaven's name could you control those if you've omitted accounting and auditing from independent oversight? We've omitted emergency medical services and we've omitted financial services as they relate to budgetary support. So the country, as far as I am concerned, this is my opinion, and I will defend it, the country has suffered an immense setback. So it was not a good Christmas, and although it's not carnival, we have the same old mass. That's a great way of, of, of describing it. I was going to say that the, the exercise was deballed, but I think you came up with a far better description than I did. So that's the Trinidad situation. Well, I think in all fairness, I should bring Jeanette in here because, and let me tell you, uh, those of you joining us, I met Jeanette online. Uh, no, it wasn't, it wasn't what you're thinking. At about three o'clock in the morning, I was watching television here in Jamaica, and I saw this lady dissecting the Auditor General's report in such a way that everybody, including my grandmother, Orica Bessa, could understand. And I, I literally looked at it the second time that I had a chance, and I was so happy that I met Jeanette in Barbados, of all places, when we gathered for a meeting of the Inter-American Development Bank, where Afro was as well. And Afro tells me that's the first time he met Jeanette as well. Correct. Yeah. So, so you understand. Anyhow, bottom line, Jeanette, I want you to talk about the Jamaica situation because you had some very tough messages for the government and even for the private sector. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's good to be with all of you. And um, just picking up from where Afra left off, and Afra, you might not have known this, but I'm not kidding. When when Julian talks about bucking me up at three o'clock one morning, it was in 2009 when I first came across your TED Talk, where you were dealing with the situation in Trinidad. And I am not kidding when I said how much that really inspired me and left a lot of residue. So it was really wonderful to have met you last year and to be here with you. The situation in Jamaica right now, well, for me, um, it's what I would call prime time for the work that I do. We have just come out at the end of every year, the Auditor General of Jamaica, and for everybody listening, we all have what we call that, I call a Supreme Audit Institution in our country. And uh, most Jamaicans have really great high regard. I remember when I was in the government sector, what it meant to be called before a public accounts committee with an Auditor General present. So we're really on the tail end of looking at her annual report and getting a really great sense of um, how much we have moved or not moved. This is the government's basically watchdog agency that audits every nook and cranny all 14 ministries, departments, programs, and their objectives, not just they're following procurement laws, but if we're getting value for money. And then on the heel of that, to come into Transparency International CPI, only to hear that we didn't fall behind as we did last year, one point. Um, we're not stagnant. Jamaica has actually gone up one point in the score. I tend to look far more at the score than the, the ranking. And so that is encouraging, but it is, when you compare an Auditor General's report that is really continuing to be deplorable in terms of our complete disregard for procurement, um, resource management, um, contracting, it is, it is an uphill climb. But my position has always been that I am doing what I do now because I believe that in Jamaica, there are several ingredients that are in place for us to begin to dial back some of the funds, well, the billions of dollars that are being misdirected and misappropriated every year in Jamaica, according to the development agencies, most of the developing countries lose 5%, 5% of our GDP. That's roughly $95 billion at a minimum. What could Jamaica do, or any of us as small island developing states with funds like that? What JAMP does, just to give you a little bit of an insight, is to recognize as citizens that the Jamaican government has put strong legislation in place. I listened to what Afra had to say. We have just two years ago brought three of our major anti-corruption agencies into one, strengthening them and giving them prosecutorial powers so that we're no longer hindered by the heavy caseload of a director of public prosecution. And in addition to that, we are now reinforcing MOCA, 
which is our major organized um, anti-corruption body, making them independent of the police, both financially and organizationally. You have development agencies willing to pump money into civil society bodies like my own. And you have what I would call an access to information legislation. And um, not all Caribbean islands, I know Barbados is still working on that. We learned that the last time we were there. But behind all of what I'm doing is the framework of a legislation that allows citizens to partner with government, to hold them to account, to support our Auditor General. And, and I'm sure Julian will give me a, a bit more time to go into what we do. But behind all of what JAMP is doing and other CSOs is that government has created a space with an access to information legislation. That is a tool that we are utilizing to track government and to hold them to account. So we have built out Jump a couple of what we call digital trackers, which is now monitoring our members of parliament and their performance and the extent to which they are respecting the compliance laws of Jamaica. We're also working with our Supreme Audit Institution. So when an audit comes in, there has to be a mechanism in place to follow up these breaches and to see, is the government remedying the gaps in accountability? And we could find no mechanism in government that was doing that, and there's no reason why citizens can't. And last, we have a legislative tracker in place where we're trying to demystify the parliament and to stimulate engagement between the parliamentarians and the citizens and a few more trackers to come. So that's where we are in Jamaica. Nothing has significantly changed in the reading of our Auditor General's report, but the enabling environment that I believe that the government, both the successive and the current one has created for citizens to really assist in, in, in improving the, the situation in corruption, it is there. And it's for us to take full advantage of it. Well, from the sound of it, Jeanette, it, it seems like certainly you have a, a very important model that could very well be shared with the rest of the region. Let me get the reaction of uh, Dr. Troy Thomas in Guyana, who is uh, ex-president of the Transparency Institute over there. Troy, we had a long conversation and learned a great deal of things about you. And I think what really came across is the, the passion and the commitment to this whole particular exercise of, of, of commitment to social society, uh, to the civil society uh, in Guyana. And I was struck by the fact that it seems that you're at a point now where the present government and the past administration both are appreciative or more appreciative of the kind of work that you guys are pursuing. Am I right on that? Yes, I think you're correct, Ed. Um, so our, the organization in Guyana is, um, was established in the, in the very uh, late part of uh, 2010. So we haven't been around very long. And we've had many of the same issues um, with government that other organizations in the Caribbean would have experienced many years ago. Um, and then we had a, a change in government in uh, 2015, and the, the sort of approach to, to us as an organization also changed. Prior to that, there was um, really an adversarial relationship between government and TIGI. I, I can't characterize it as anything else. Um, but that change, it was not any longer adversarial, but I, and, and we were invited to participate in, in certain activities and contribute at certain um, fora, but it was not an, uh, an all-out embrace, um, so to speak. Um, you still felt to some extent there were some uh, token involvement in, in certain things. Um, but in the meantime, while, while that was happening, the previous, the party that was previously in government that now at that time was in opposition, also seemed to change its stance towards us by inviting us to events and to make contributions and so forth. And that was good because it means that the major political forces in the country have begun to see us as an organization that can make contributions um, or that they would like to have us make contributions. That's not something you can step back from easily when it's uh, no longer convenient. So I think that was a, a really um, good development. We have been 
I'd say over the last five years in a somewhat steady march towards improvement if we were to measure it according to, if we were to uh, evaluate that uh, based on the results of the Corruption Perception Index. We're nowhere near uh, where we need to be in, and the work is by no means completed. But I think we've made some we've made some strides. There are still many areas like access to information. We we have an app that could actually be used um, to restrict information rather than make it available because of how it is conceptualized and, and implemented. Um, and so that needs to change. We we don't have anything on political financing or campaign financing. And this was something, you know, we were very hopeful about the implementation of laws about political financing. I think it would have been perhaps one of the main game changer in terms of um, addressing grand corruption. And while it was specifically promised and reaffirmed by the previous government, it never happened. And so I feel that as a great loss, a great loss of an opportunity. Um, and I think it's going to be an uphill battle now because the uh, all of the issues that we felt would have led to uh, the necessity of that type of law would have been based on our memories of what happened on the government prior to that. Now those individuals largely are back in power. And I feel like we might have an uphill battle to push them to, to get laws like that in place. Um, nonetheless, I think while we can get frustrated about the situation, it's important that, you know, many for many of us to remain optimistic because the uh, one of the ultimate outcomes of frustration could be that you, you stop working and we never want to do that. We have been making some progress. If you think about, you know, we have the, the emerging oil sector in the petroleum sector. And for the first time, we've had uh, contracts published. They weren't published on time or beforehand or, or wasn't, but we have them in the public domain. The, the government in Guyana has had deals with companies before for gold mining and all of that, and we don't know what the details of those contracts were. But the fact that we have that now open and in the public, we can say all we want about it. Um, but I, I view that as a major change, a major stride towards transparency, and we gotta we gotta secure those gains, even as we push for more. Well, we'll come back and, and give you a chance to talk a little bit more about the environment in Guyana. Let me remind uh, all of you who are joining us right now that my guest this Saturday, Afro Raymond, who is the transparency activist and the man out of Trinidad and Tobago, with a with what uh, what he calls the thinking man's uh, web blog. Uh, Jeanette Calder, the executive director of the Jamaica Accountability Meetup Portal. We're suggesting that she shortens it to Jamaica Accountability. And of course, you just heard from Dr. Troy Thomas, who is the Dean of Faculty, Natural Sciences, UG, as we say. And uh, he's a past president of the Transparency Institute in uh, Guyana. Let me remind you that you can share your comments with us. Uh, we certainly like to have them up on our screen. And, uh, and get the word out that we're up and running on Caribbean bridges. Glad you're with us right now. I want to go back to Afro, though. And from here on, I'm just inviting you guys to interact with each other. I mean, I'm, a, I'm not even a referee now. I, I'm prepared to listen and, and pick up what's happening. But Afro, when you listen to the Guyana situation, uh, do you have any comfort at all? Or am I picking up from your, your first, in, your, your first uh, uh, bat? Was that the political forces are playing a major role in delaying the implementation that you expect? The question, Julian, I think the Guyana move is particularly fruitful because uh, we have a situation where on his own butt, Troy took up that case on the Exxon Mobil oil contract and was successful in challenging the case so we had a major contract probably the major contract that the Guyanese state entered with a multinational and uh, that contract was successfully challenged in the high court because of the, the intrepid and the informed advocacy that, that, that Troy represents that's why he has he has our respect okay but we need to place all of this in a, in a context 
that we are actually operating in a in an environment that is a, a neo-colonial environment. We we have independence, but other things are operating, and the other things that are operating is that our countries are still tied to those arrangements. By which I mean that if you just look at COVID, for example, colleagues and, and viewers, if you look at COVID, for example, we have a situation in which we are all being told, whether it's Jamaica, Guyana, Trinidad, Barbados, globally, we're all being told to make a sacrifice. We have to tighten our belts. Employers are being expected to make a sacrifice. Employees are being expected to make a sacrifice, yes? We've all heard that sort of lyrics from people. And I put the point, I put it on the 6th of October here in a post-budget discussion. I put the point that some contracts, some arrangements are privileged in that they're held to be in such high priority that they're inviolable. And I asked the question, the Trinidad and Tobago government rents a huge number of offices every year. And I asked the question on the 6th of October, what is the amount of money we spend on rent in the month of October 2010, 2020? Has that amount of money compared to April 2020 when COVID just started? Six months. Let's take a six-month comparison. Has that amount of money gone up or down? Commercial people, and I'm in the commercial property business. That's my profession. Commercial people, people who rent offices, people who rent shops, restaurants, We've all renegotiated our, our, our leases. We have, our firm we have, because we have branches, and we've renegotiated our leases. Are our governments actually going back to those people with whom they have these arrangements and saying, listen, this is difficult. You have to make a sacrifice. Or is it only the working people, the wage laborers, the poorer people, let me say it directly, who are being told this sacrifice lyric or Calypso, the kind of sacrifice road march. You want to talk about carnival. Is it the sacrifice road march is just for the poor man? But the landlords and those who have the big contracts are somehow in a position that their arrangements are impregnable. And that sense of priorities, which I understand that these priorities exists. Yeah. It is as real as the nose on your face. And we have to understand its implications for us. And particularly those of us at the sharp edge, like Jeanette and Troy and other colleagues who will be listening to this and other concerned citizens, because this is, an, is a fundamental issue of social and economic justice. I see a, a lady put something up on Facebook a little while ago, it flashed across the screen about some of my work relating to social housing and so on and, and, and affordable housing. And that is absolutely so. We need to be aware of the fact that, the fact that our, there it is, Natalie Knight here, yeah. Our advocacy is a purposeful advocacy. It is, not just, it is not just a bookish insistence on seeing this book or seeing that book. We want to see this book and we want to see that book because we want to restore a proper sense of order. And, we want, and the fight, as far as I am concerned, is a fight for social and economic justice and to bring real meaning, content to independence, as opposed to just the form of independence. So that the assets of the country, the wealth of the country is used for the benefit of its people who need assistance. So that's how I would that's how I would put the point. So Troy, good one on the on the Exxon Mobile contract, but I'm just placing it in a wider, in a wider context as part of this discussion. Okay. I want then, well, I mean, <laughs> Jeanette, I, I come back to you only because I want to get a sense since you you, you really represent a very powerful civil society activity in Jamaica. Is the political will there to make the kind of impressions that, that you and, and, and Afra and Troy are talking about? I think on the surface of it, um, this is not just a beating up on our members of parliament kind of response. If you have faith and if you understand what the work of an auditor general is, she doesn't operate from her gut. She operates from documentation. Um, these reports are the same based on our research. It looks the same. We have gone back, I think, 16 years of reading them. I've gone back even pre-independence. They sound the same. So you said to yourself that if the parliament, if the seat of accountability in a nation is the parliament, and it is, um, the parliament is there to provide the oversight role, 
to ensure that the government is working as it is and carrying out the policies of the parliament. And let us not forget that the role outside of that for the parliament is what we call the budget cycle. The government only exists, you know, to do three main things and providing public goods and services, defending us or security um, is, is two of those main roles. Now that budget cycle, we provided $800 billion um, to our government. The parliament is there to determine how it's gonna be allocated. The executive is there to implement those policies and the parliament is back there in the in the hot seat to ensure that they're being executed. Those dollars are bringing in back value for money. The oversight committees that we've all inherited from the British Westminster system, the public accounts committee is key. That public accounts committee in all of our territories is really supposed to get the reports of the auditor general, calling the executive and to hold him to account for what went what did not go the way it should and to find remedies so that it doesn't keep on recurring. Now, the simple fact is that from the Jamaican experience, and I will bet from the few of the other territories that I have read, is that the Public Accounts Committee and the Parliament is not doing justice to that role of oversight. Um, where is the accountability? One of the things that is very encouraging is that transparency has improved in men in in some and and quite important regard in jamaica for example um prior to 2017 jamaicans did not have the opportunity to watch the full length of a discourse between the public accounts committee and the the um the executive meaning the, the permanent secretaries or management team and the technical team answering questions about loss of funds or goods and services that disappear or persons who are hired with contracts way beyond that which the Minister of Finance has authorized. We get to see that from beginning to end. And if you happen to miss it because you work at home, it is uploaded. That is something new. Jamaicans are beginning to understand better the role of the PAC. But here's the difficulty that we have. What is the role of the citizen? Where is the entry point for the citizen in that discourse? At the end of the day, I am the, the, the main check and balance, not even the PAC. So the question of Jamaica's PAC not functioning, because we watch these meetings year after year and we still get the same Auditor General's report. And Jam's theory of change, Julian Afro and everybody listening, Troy, is that, you know, my mother taught me when I was growing up, if I point at anybody, there are three fingers pointing back. So I've been pointing at the government, I've been pointing at the PAC, but I've been neglecting the three fingers telling and asking me, what is your role, Jeanette? What is the role of all the citizens? I believe that um, Jamaica really does have an opportunity with all of those ingredients that I have mentioned. And power concedes nothing without a demand. And so, for example, we've had a report come out pertaining to the Ministry of Labor and Social Security. And I threw out a challenge on TV um, in an interview earlier this week that said, what if every citizen of Jamaica picked up this tool, this instrument, that my great-grandfather did not have the prime minister on speed dial, but we have him on social media. He's willing to speak to us. He has been. What if Jamaicans picked up this and asked every member of parliament, which preferably yours, here is the Auditor General's report. Here is a matter I'm concerned about. What concrete action are you going to take when you get in the parliament next week, Tuesday, to reverse this? Ask it publicly and continue to ask it until your member of parliament answers. And on Tuesday, tune in to see if your member of parliament stood up in the house and made a motion to ask for this matter to be tabled and discussed. Test it. Try it. The bottom line, what I'm saying, Julian, is that we call them representatives. They are supposed to be representing our views. But if I don't approach them, if I don't say what I want them to go down there and say, then really, am I not also a part of the problem? So that is what JAMP is doing. I, I love Caribbean bridges because we've been saying JAMP wants to be a tool that bridges the gap between the citizen and the parliament, the citizen and their member of parliament, and particularly allowing the diaspora, the voice of the diaspora to be engaged because of the power of social media. So that is my view on it. I don't think we're, we've been battling crime in Jamaica. We also had very bad news this week, not just with the CPI, but in terms of where we are. Um, we're now 
number one in the world. We've always been shifting between one, two, and three. But what I want to pause, you know, and, and allow someone else to speak is, I want to I wanna say this much. When it comes down to crime, I don't know where the next den of iniquity is going to spring up. And I don't know who is next. But I think it's very different with corruption. There are three things that have to come together for Jamaica to continue to lose $95 billion a year. It has to be that those funds are being leaked where? Oversight. The parent ministry is not providing oversight. The parliament is not providing oversight. And the Ministry of Finance is not providing the oversight. That's one. Number two, there's just three. Number two is that there is no proper financial reporting. We have agencies of government who have collected billions of dollars over five years and have never reported back to the parliament how they have spent this money. That's crazy. So wherever you see lack of financial reporting. And then the third, to create that enabling environment for corruption is really wherever you find disregard for the procurement rules of Jamaica. Now, wherever those three are coinciding and we can tell by looking at what the Auditor General says, that's where Jamaica needs to focus. And that is where we will be able to dial back the funds that we're losing and close the news on corruption. It is not as difficult as we think it is. Yeah. Here, let me, let me while, while I have you there, Jeanette, um, look at the question on the screen. You want to respond to that now? Yes, there is. Um, there is whistleblowing legislation in place. It still needs to be. <clears throat> Um, the, the difficulty is you, 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 you put a reasonably well-sounding whistleblower legislation in place. But the reality in, it, in the office is that people are really not convinced that if I step forward and say something that I'm not going to be victimized, that I'm not going to, that I'm, that I'm going to be promoted, that I'm, well, let me put it this way, that the opportunities for promotion that come that I won't be passed over, that I'm not going to be victimized and cold-shouldered in the office. Um, or in, in, in real languages that I won't end up going home to my family. So we have the legislation in place. However, we still have on the books that official state secret that almost all civil servants had to sign. <clears throat> so there's a contradiction in the law whereby we still have the official state secrets act riding along with a whistleblower um, legislation. Personally, I have heard MOCA, the Integrity Commission, and the Auditor General in Jamaica state that the majority of their special reports come from whistleblowers, persons who find ways and means to get in touch with them. You walk into an internet, you open a, a new um, email account at the internet where they can track it back to your personal laptop. You write the Auditor General and you, you leave the place and they act on that. So I don't, I want to encourage civil servants and it has been increasing in Jamaica, whistleblower legislation or not. There are ways and means and they are taking advantage of it and our institutions are responding. So we have it, but it's really on paper, not terribly impressive. And I'm pleased to say civil servants are not letting that detain them one way or the other. All right. I, I, at about this point, I'm supposed to say that you're watching Caribbean Bridges, etc. But I think Jeanette did a great job of it uh, earlier by uh, reinforcing the value of this uh, session. Thank you very much, Jeanette. Let's uh, let me bring uh, Troy, Dr. Troy Thomas, back in here because I seem to remember Troy a situation in Guyana where, in Parliament, the, the the battle between the political forces in the Guyana Parliament really frustrated. Uh, the work of the of the Public Accounts Committee. Am I right in that historical flashback? Troy, Troy, your your microphone. Yes. You, I think you are you are correct on that. And while I don't have all the details um, to uh, to present now. It's, it's a situation where um, the, the political parties um, have a say in, in choosing the, identifying the members of um, the committee and, and that can always lead to, um, to, to issues of deadlock and, and delays and so forth. But we do have, a, well, we did have a, a public accounts committee who's activated um, I think it might be 2018. I believe it was 2018. 
but that was after a, a, a very long period. Um, and their work or their tenure as a committee also came to an end. But, you know, Guyana just also came out of a, uh, a period that I think has left a bit of a stain on our national pride, which has to do with um, the transition to a new government following a no-confidence vote. So if we think about that entire period, which is about a year and a half, there was not much um, that was done in the country and not much progress would have been made on, on some matters. So while there was a problem in the past, we seem to have uh, gone over that hump. There were other things that popped up along the way that hindered not only, not only the function of any particular community, but generally, in fact, even the work of civil society in some cases were stalled because the people that you might have to refer to we're not really in a position to respond in the kind of ways that um, you would want uh, them to respond. I'm glad that that period is, is now over and uh, with the installation of a, a new government. Um, and I, I guess now we, we have to um, try and get everything in place, get everything up and running. But I do know that the, the Public Accounts Committee was um, put together and they were and it was doing its work um, for a period before we went into that uh, sort of period of political um, turmoil. I will. I, I, I'm. I'm just going to extend it by moving beyond the public accounts, uh, because in the current situation, there are a lot of reports about very illegal transactions, alleged uh, legal transactions, actually involving land, vehicles, all kinds of things. And you've got, a, you've got a government agency in the new administration, so to speak, that's been digging into all of this. And we get all these reports about, you know, what, what, uh, what we might very well say is, as bubble or scampishness going on in that environment. Is transparency on top of that? Um, so we have, I think you're referring to, um, to SARA, State Asset Recovery uh, yeah. Agency. Yeah. Yes. So we have um, been taking note of what SARA has been doing. There have been lots of accusations um, about you know, uh, misuse of public funds resources. There were even cases that went, in, went to the courts um, when, when that new government took office in 2015, so, uh, subsequent to that. Um, as far as I'm aware, nothing came out of that. And I think the, the last one of the cases that had to do with um, transfer of government vehicles. By and large, uh, what happens, and without attempting to make a pronouncement on uh, the substance of those cases, when you, you have a, a, an environment where corruption is pervasive, um, it weakens even the state institutions. Um, and so the, the, the institutions are not, they don't have the, the capacity to, to do what they need to do, like prosecution, putting a case together. So you're gonna lose those cases. Um, and it seems like to a large extent, that is what happened. Because we were quickly hearing about queries regarding how evidence was um, obtained and whether the people who did it were the right people to, um, to produce that evidence, whether the, the uh, forensic audits that were done were at the standard required to, to um, uh, support criminal conviction and, and, and all that. So my own take though is I am not so sure that our political leaders, that among them there is the will to, uh, to bring to justice or to hold to account um, other political leaders who would have engaged in, in that type of activity. I think there is more mileage to be had from the public show of it. Um, and I say that because so far I have not seen any of those leading to something really, you know, definitive, substantial. Uh, impunity is still very much alive in Guyana, and I think as long as that remains, there isn't too much of an incentive for people to avoid certain um, 
certain activities. So what we're hearing now that a new government is taking office, we're hearing accusations about past holders of the offices as well. And it seems like we're about to go through another cycle of that kind of, uh, that kind of thing. But I think we, you know, Sarah, there were debates about its legality and its mandate and how it was set up and, and all of that. And ultimately, I don't think we've had any, you know, like substantive report out of Sarah on, um, you know, what it, what it was able to recover um, on behalf of the people. I, I understand that there were some cases that were settled um, privately. And if the, if the goal is to recover the assets, uh, prosecution might be a secondary goal. I, I can understand that. Um, but by and large, I don't think we, we had, uh, say, a delivery on what we might have expected um, to, to be delivered, given the, uh, what was said about these situations before, what we were led to believe about the extent to which things were, were happening. You know, Troy, you, you give me a good lead to, to Afra at this point, because while we focus a lot on the matter of, of procurement and, and so on regarding government agencies, um, if we are to stamp out corruption, we need to also look at corruption in the private sector. And I know that everybody has a story, but nobody wants to come forward and stand up and say this person thief and that person thief and whatever else. It reminds me of a of, of former prime minister. Patrick Manning in, in, in Trinidad saying many times ago that, um, you know, we know who Mr. Big is. But Afra, let's talk about the matter of, uh, of corruption in the private sector and maybe where it is being facilitated by people in the government sector. Yeah. Well, the biggest, thanks, Julian. The biggest example, I would have liked to have come in on the public accounts committee question, but I'm sure we'll talk uh, again. I'm, no, hold on, hold on. Go, go right ahead on the pack. Right. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. I'll give an example of how, of, how, of the situation here. We have a, a very diverse series of public accounts committees. I'm, I'm responding to Jeanette's points, yeah? And I'm just, going to, I'm just going to cite from an extract. So the public accounts committee in February of 2013 made a report. And the chairman of the committee was actually complaining about the same thing, Jeanette, non-receipt of up-to-date audited financial statements by state enterprises, yes? which continue to be the most severe impediment. Listen to this. In February 2011, the committee, which is the parliament, wrote to the head of all state enterprises asking for the audited accounts to be submitted and updated as a matter of urgency. The committee received, this is two years later the committee is talking, because eh? they're talking in 13. The committee received responses only 10% of the state enterprises. And that committee was sitting in 2011 to examine the, the accounts for Caribbean Airlines for 2008. You see the point? So we, have, we, have, we also have a situation where there are a series of laws all forming a matrix of public financial management in it, which are effectively unenforced in a manner that wouldn't happen in a private enterprise or, or a, group, a group of companies. And let me make the point here because there's a decisive point to come out here, which is that the learning from the Sharman report in the UK is that in fact public money has to be treated to a higher standard, managed to a higher standard and accounted for to a higher standard than private money. And if therefore I could say irre irrefutably that that could not happen in a group of companies without people losing their jobs and their pensions and probably facing criminal charges, it should not be able to happen in our public money, yes? And, and I think that is an important point for us to keep uppermost in our minds as we go forward in the campaigns. Now, Julian, let me deal with your point about private sector corruption and the interface with government, with the biggest example, which I have spent a lot of time working on, which is the CL Financial bailout. CL Financial was the biggest commercial and financial group ever formed in the Caribbean, ever. It was formed by people of African descent. Let's put that out there. Okay, for all the people who black people can't do this and black people can't do that, black people run, developed and designed and managed and took CL Financial to its heights. The group crashed at the end of 08 and there was a bailout announced at the end of January of 09. 
and the bailout was remarkable for the following reasons. That company was able to write to the, to the central bank governor on the 13th of January, 09, to say, hey, there's a crisis, we need a bailout. The memorandum of understanding for the bailout was signed on the 30th of January of 09. 17 days later, they were able to get a memorandum of understanding signed. And that memorandum of understanding was absolutely remarkable because A, the shareholders didn't give up any of their shares. B, there was no limit to how much money it was. It was a blank check. C, there was no interest charged on the money that we lend them. In fact, my research has shown we've spent about over $25 billion of $20 has been spent on this bailout. And about $5 billion of that has been the cost we, as, as the state, have incurred to borrow money to give back those people. Okay? That is Mr. Lawrence Supri and Mr. Andre Mondai and so on. Jamaica was uninflicted by this because Jamaica had a series of strong regulations that came in after its own financial crash in the 80s and so on. So Clico never went to Jamaica. So in fact, every cloud had a silver lining in the case of Jamaica. Okay, Guyana had a touch of Clico. In fact, a big touch of Clico. All right, so it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a regional issue, but Jamaica escaped the impact. But the point about it, and the final nail in the coffin, is that the person signing the MOU was the Minister of Finance signing for the government, which is a lady called Karen Nunes Tishera. And my research later revealed that that lady was a shareholder of the company that she was signing a bailout for. Oh. 10,832 shares or something so. Yeah. Not to mention withdrawing money in the millions at the end of the December 2008, just before the letter of the 13th of January 2009. The headline in the Express, February the 4th of 2009, when Mrs. Nunes Ishera was being interviewed by my colleague Kamini Maraj. The headline in the Express was, which encapsulated the minister's sentiments, the then minister's sentiments was, everybody knew Clico was in trouble. Because they were challenging her, but how could she take her money out? Everybody knew they were in trouble. So we really have a lot of important work to do in terms of understanding the size of the problem, where it comes from, and to reorganize our priorities. And I, I really value sessions like this. I value these exchanges. It's, 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 it's a highly respected panel of people. I have good regard for everybody here. So thank you, Julian. Okay. Wow. You just you just brought back a lot of a lot of memories in terms of my mm -hmm. journalistic work in Trinidad mm -hmm. and Tobago, and I remember those times very very well mm -hmm. and the contentions etc. Uh, Jeanette, you you've heard you've heard you heard that that um, that Trinidad and Tobago situation. I know you can flash back mm -hmm. to what uh, Afro referred to at a time when really Jamaica was 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 really bombarded by a lot of the fallout in the commercial sector. We're now in a new environment, as far as I'm concerned. I've only been here for two years, but I, I get a different, a, a, a different sense. Is it because of the steps taken, as Afro suggested, that whole situation and created a, a different environment now? Um, hmm. Whenever the hmm. matter of the private sector's involvement in corruption comes up, uh, persons really do get a little bit short, for instance, with me. Um, my focus so far has really been solely on the role and the responsibility of the public servant, maybe because I was one. And I, I still feel a, a sense of um, affinity, solidarity. I know what I saw when I was in government. I realized that there's a social contract in place between the public sector and the people of Jamaica or any other territories here. I don't have a contract in place with the private sector and i and i'm hoping that's not coming out like a coupled it is because it's the nexus between the public and the private where corruption happens that i believe that if we really begin to hold the public sector to account and those that came to me and jamaica and said vote for me let me go and represent your interest and the others that we pay for in the executive we pay their salaries why i I really unapologetically have focused far more on the work of getting public sector transformation, believing if we do that, a lot of what needs to happen in the private sector will happen. There are really only two things I saw 
when I was in government. I was in housing and contracting and wherever that is, you're going to find inducement and enticement. You don't only have to have people. Um, it's not so much a case of the public sector going to the private sector. The private sector really comes and induces and entices. And if the environment is right for it, they'll take advantage of it. So I'm agreeing with Afra. But so far in terms of the kind of work that JAMP is doing, we're solidly looking in the space of strengthening the existing accountability mechanisms of government because we have solid foundation for that. And I see you know, the question about change flittering across the screen. And I am a great believer in what Margaret Mead says. You know, It only takes a small amount of citizens to change the world. And that's what's going to change each of our territories. Change is happening in each of the territories, folks. The question is the degree. And we want to pick up pace. And, and from where I am sitting here in Jamaica, Jam's theory of change is based on, it might really sound very simple, but I think it's very powerful. I look at myself and I'm asking you to treat me as the guinea pig. I didn't study political science, public administration. I'm an architect by training, like, like Afro, right? But sometimes citizens decide that was Afro in the construction, construction industry. We're not coming out of this space people think we would typically come out of, but there are two things that led me to do what I'm doing now. And I'm, I'm planting the seeds, believing that I'm not special and I'm not unique. There are three things that I, I, I learned. One, what is the accountability framework for your territory? You've got to figure that out. The more people understand the mechanics of that is the more encouraged they are. There were things in my heart that I could not get out through my mouth until I could understand that then I could articulate the things that we all have in our heart. The next thing is that I, un I needed to understand what I call the national budget literacy. The, everything we're talking about here have to do with the national budget, you know, from the planning and the formulation to the debate and the approval process to the implementation of the budget and then the monitoring and the scrutiny. I used to think the budget process stopped at once it passed in the house. No. And then the question is our role in those four phases because the whole of that is capturing what government does and how we interact with it and the last and the third thing is we need to demystify parliament every every monday the cabinet meets to make decisions about my life and yours every tuesday the government meets the general house and then wednesday and thursday the public accounts committee and then the senate those are all decisions that impact my life and i need to understand how it works and the, and the beauty of it is the more we understand is the more citizens begin to engage it. And the more we begin to engage it is the more we can know what influence those hands that's writing legislation, writing policies and meeting in secret places with people. I am now able to have the conversations I have leaning and pressing on government because of those three areas and the knowledge empowers us. And I believe that the environment in all our territories are changing as well as our leaders, but we don't realize how much until we put it to the test. So the ground is fertile for change. I'm terribly encouraged about it, backed by an Auditor General and 120 Jamaicans there who are faithfully doing their part, asking us as citizens, you're really making it too easy for these guys. And, and that's what I think. We have made it too easy. There, ha there has to be a higher cost for corruption. We have really made it very easy. Sometimes I think they sit back and say, boy, I can't believe we got away with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and, uh, and I, I want to put the Troy in, in a couple of minutes. <clears throat> the, the fact is that we focus a lot on government. Uh, we suggested the private sector as well, but somebody reminded me that little people are also involved in the corruption practice because, you know, end up paying bribes is who, you know, you push whatever the case may be and uh and i know that Guyana is not is not special in that in that regard yeah um troy yeah well yes yeah, true and there was a, a global corruption barometer um that was done in Guyana for the first time in 2019 um I know it was also done in Trinidad and Jamaica and a few other places in the, in the region. And what that thing showed is that when it comes to 
to paying bribes, Ghana was one of the noteworthy um, countries. Um, I think to a large extent for people, it's a it's an easy way out of um, whatever situations they might find themselves in or, or not a situation you find yourself in. Sometimes people pay bribes just for uh, services that should be there anyway or to, to, for those services to become a little bit more efficient or more particularized to, to, to their needs. But it's the, uh, because of the weakness of our institutions and how they've been broken and, and misused and abused over, over the years, people feel exposed and as if they have no one to turn to, um, to get support in the right way. So. The easy way out is to, to do this. If you have something that uh, you get into some issue with somebody, do you call the police in to resolve it? That might actually add to your burden. Some might, might rationalize and they find some other way to settle it. Um, and the, the corruption thing, in the what we do focus a lot on the public sector as well. And I agree because the uh, leaders in the public sector, they're really responsible to the people. They should be responsible to the people. So it's, it's a lot easier for us to, um, to focus there and ask for things and press for results um, than to go to a private business and do the same thing. They're not responsible to us in the same way. And so our approach to, to corruption in the private sector needs to be a little bit different. Uh, TI Transparency International's definition of corruption itself focuses us on grand corruption and corruption in the, the public sector. So a lot of the transparency organizations might, uh, would tend to focus more there. Um, something that I, you know, on the question that somebody was asking about how do you um, effect change, indeed it, it starts with understanding what is there, what is available, how you might be able to, to use them to your advantage. But there is a lot of change happening, and I do agree that the pace of it could be, is what we, we, um, we are not at peace with, at peace with, because you know, there is a lot of common sense things that can happen right now, but they take years to happen. And so we continue to bleed resources as a result. And, and that is what gets to us sometimes. And so, you know, on the question of why we talk so much about these issues, um, I also say to people, you know, I, from the TIGI experience that we are a watchdog and not a cheerleader. We got to find ways to recognize the positive changes, but ultimately I'm a watchdog. I go after where the issues are and where there is need for change and don't, you know, sit back on the things that we achieve and say, well, this is great, we're doing good. Budget is an important issue, and I don't mean to speak for TIGI, but I know this is an important thing on the agenda of the organization now, making that budget understandable to citizens, putting something in place to, for citizens to interact with that budget and know what's going on there. We, we also want to be able to track what is happening with oil money. Where is it going? Which communities are benefiting? Which ones are not? So that you can you know, you, you can direct your advocacy to, to if, this is, if this money belongs to all of us, you, you know how to direct your advocacy to get the kinds of um, uh, interventions that you want. And so, yes, I, I think finally, um, our young people across the region um, need to uh, get involved. A lot of them are involved, but we need them and we absolutely have to start addressing this thing through education as well, through formal education. Troy, I think that's a very, very good point to make and a good closing point as well. I want to thank Afra, Raymond in Trinidad and Tobago, Jeanette Calder in Jamaica, and of course, Troy Thomas in Guyana for joining us in this session where T from T make God laugh. I'm Julian Rogers in Kingston, Jamaica. Spread the word. Caribbean Bridges is right here every Saturday. Six o'clock in the Eastern Caribbean, five o'clock in Jamaica. Be safe, everybody.